You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this ODI seminar on development finance institutions and the pandemic response, uh, su supporting job protection during and after the pandemic. We are organizing this meeting in partnership with uh, the CDC, the UK's Development Finance Institution, DEG, the German equivalent, Proparco, and the EDFI, European Development Finance Institutions more generally. This event is the first in a in a broader series that we're organizing, exploring how development finance institutions have responded to the COVID-19 crisis. The next event will be uh, on support for the health sector, for example, which will take place on the 22nd of October. This meeting is about development finance institutions and jobs. And there are sort of large number of jobs that have already been lost globally due to the pandemic, and some are, more, uh, are expected to be lost even further. Um, there are also quite a large number of people in vulnerable employment, and that is also expected to increase dramatically. Now, it's also fair to say that there have been formidable policy responses already. Um, but I would also say that perhaps they're not enough, and certainly with respect to low-income countries. If we, for example, look at support measures for the private sector, a forthcoming World Bank paper suggests that only 4.5 percent 4.5% of firms in low-income countries can access such measures. Uh, and this is rising to about 40% in high-income uh, country settings. So this presents an opportunity for development finance institutions to play a crucial role in this uh, pandemic and also in the future to strengthen firms through their strategic, practical, and financial means. In the short run, it's to protect jobs and the quality of jobs um, and to support the private sector uh, perhaps in the medium term as well, who need to pull the recovery uh, onto sort of a better and a more diversified growth path, uh, which involves formalization, uh, responding to digitalization, uh, etc. And this is sort of in for the medium and the longer term, a key opportunity for DFIs. And so I'm very pleased that to discuss this, we have a really excellent panel with sort of the, the right expertise. Uh, I'll be asking them in a minute to make an initial statement for about five minutes each. And we'll then discuss uh, questions from the audience uh, that come in through the chat. And I'm really delighted uh, that we have such a large audience today. Um, and then I'll be closing the meeting at about uh, 2 p.m. after I've had, uh, given the chance to the, the presenters to say some final remarks. Um, so let me briefly introduce the, the, the panel. Um, we have uh, four panelists and we'll start with St Dr. Steve Karingi. Uh, he's the director for regional integration in the trade division of the UN Economic Commission for Africa, and he joined that uh, in uh, 2004. Uh, secondly, we have Professor Carlos Oya. He's a professor of uh, political economy of development uh, at SOAS here in London, and he's recently undertaken highly influential research on industrial workforces in, for example, Ethiopia, uh, garment value chains, and also the role of Chinese labor practices in Africa. And then we'll turn to two DFI specialists, um, uh, specialists on labor quality. Uh, for example, we will uh, hear from Dr. Sam Lacey, who is uh, CDC's job quality lead, shaping the organization's approach to SDG 8 and the decent work agenda, 
and she has 15 years of professional experience in responsible investment and business. Uh, and then we'll turn uh, uh, finally to uh, Dr. Julian Freda, who is a senior manager at the DEG's uh, Department of, for Corporate Strategy and Development Policy. And Julian is, uh, uh, amongst others, responsible for the development and implementation of DEG's impact management system uh, and also a range of strategic evaluation studies. Um, so let me first um, turn to, uh, to Stephen, Dr. Stephen Karingi. Uh, given the large impact on African economies that we're currently seeing during the COVID crisis, and particularly impact on uh, the negative impact on private sector jobs on the, on the continent, what do you think should be the policy responses? And what do you think is an appropriate role for development finance institutions? Over to you, Stephen. Uh, thank you, thank you. Good afternoon uh, and good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, let me start uh, by supposing that we we expect we expect the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, to have a very severe negative impact on employment uh, in Africa, and uh, the fear is that it's likely uh, to reverse the years of uh, gains that the continent uh, has has been making. So before I mention, if I give you uh, my thinking on or at least our ideas on how the DFIs could come in, um, allow me to give you a few statistics. Now, the first statistic I want to share with you is that uh, because of COVID-19, it is expected that there was going to be a 10% increase in employment vulnerability in the continent. And we have undertaken at the Economic Commission for Africa, 79 million are going to be pushed back into extreme poverty. Uh, it is interesting that uh, there was an article today in the Financial Times where they were talking of how difficult it is for families to get out of poverty once they are pushed back in extreme poverty. Now, the second point I would want to make is that um, we did a survey uh, between June and July uh, in collaboration with um, the International Economic Consultants, a firm that is based uh, in Mauritius. And what we did was to find out what the businesses see as the prospects or jobs going forward. What we found and this is in addition to the surprise businesses when the pandemic uh, started. Um, the other point uh, I would want to make is that those businesses that are working in the area of goods because we ask them whether they are working in the area of goods or in the area of services, those businesses that are working in the area of goods, they are likely to lay off more employees than those that are working in services. So, what are the possible reasons uh, behind these job losses by these businesses within the continent? They gave us the three top challenges that they are facing. These three challenges include 
opportunities for them to meet the in demand of their products and their services. And that is, and very importantly, for the conversation we are having here, lack of operational cash. Um, cash flow challenges have been the issue uh, for um, uh, Stephen, um, I think we have a bit of uh, difficulty uh, hearing you. Um, maybe what we can do is if, if you try and work on your connection, um, then what we can then do is first move to, um, uh, to, to Carlos Oya, and then maybe you can work on your, on, your, on your connection in the meantime so we can improve it. Um, and then we can follow you. Otherwise, it's a bit difficult to hear from uh, to hear you. Uh, and I'm sorry to the audience that we find it uh, difficult to what a connection is. I think from uh, from from Kenya. Uh, but let's move then first to uh, uh, then uh, to to Carlos. And um, uh, uh, I mean, I, I mean, Stephen already started with some statistics, uh, um, but uh, and also sort of about the number of jobs uh, that are being lost and. And it's important to think about the protection of jobs uh, and quality workforce and protecting uh, jobs is a crucial issue during the crisis. Uh, but there are also longer term issues, as I mentioned, such as uh, diversification and the future of work considerations. What do you think are the key policy issues, the labor market issues uh, that need to be considered? And what is the potential role for private sector DFIs in this? Um, please over to you, Carlos. Thank you, Derek, um, and thank you for inviting me to this uh, excellent panel and very uh, exciting topic, even if it's uh, one that is not, uh, that is sometimes a little bit depressing to talk about. But um, I mean, I want to make uh, a number of points in, in terms of the key policy issues and challenges in relation to the very short term and then in relation to the medium to, to, to the long term. But before that, just a, a quick premise in relation to what we're really talking about. And I'm, I'm basically thinking particularly about low-income countries or low-middle-income countries where these problems are exacerbated by the fact that labor market conditions uh, um, generate a very, very high proportion of what uh, the ILO calls vulnerable employment, uh, which by definition is vulnerable, highly vulnerable to precisely these kind of uh, shocks like uh, COVID-19. Um, and that is the reality of most countries and also the reality of, of most of these countries is that there are no established and, and widespread social protection systems to cope with uh, such shocks. They are not uh, um, um, functioning um, um, so social insurance systems, unemployment benefit systems, etc., etc., which means that when people lose jobs or when people uh, in some cases, it's not so much losing a job, but uh, being able to work uh, fewer days or getting less for what they work, uh, there is no uh, way of, of, of getting uh, income um, um, as an alternative. So job protection is, is a hugely important issue, and one has to, con to, to think creatively about what kinds of things can, uh, can improve. I think when we talk about in improving the quality jobs, uh, there are many issues that are frequently mentioned. Uh, particularly in the decent work agenda. But I would especially highlight for low and middle income countries, there are two attributes that are fundamental importance for workers. But when you talk to workers, these are the two things that always stand out. One is decent remuneration. And, and this relates to the, to the idea of um, 
uh, a living wage on which there is no consensus. How do you calculate a living wage? But you know there are options there. And secondly, is job security, a stable job that doesn't always depend on demand conditions or other constraints, which often affect, for example, informal and vulnerable jobs. Um, so these two characteristics, for example, tend to come with uh, formalized jobs or jobs that uh, are uh, an outcome of processes of structural change, structural transformation. So in countries like Ethiopia, that is embarking into a process, very ambitious process of industrialization, precisely one of the goals is to to build up the, the, the pool of more stable industrial jobs, which will benefit particularly young women. Um, so again, the question is, you know, how much we can sustain the increase, the expansion of these kinds of jobs, and what can we do to protect these emerging jobs from uh, shocks like uh, COVID? So I see two, uh, two basic areas of, of intervention and, and, and thinking and, and, and areas of challenges. The first one is the short term. And, and we already know a little bit of what's happened since March and, and, and some of the affected countries. So in the short term, the emphasis really is and the need tends to be on cushioning the shock and basically engaging in damage limitation. So for policymakers and firms, uh, the issue remains, you know, how can, how can we keep as many jobs as possible? Uh, how, can, how can we keep as much work time as possible for those who have fractional flexible jobs or, or depend on the hours, they, uh, the days they work. And then third, obviously, they find an alternative sources of income if those jobs are no longer viable in the context of, of shocks like COVID. So that means retooling livelihoods. So a key instrument for the first two objectives is, you know, what we know as furlough or, you know, other wage subsidy schemes. Now, the big question for low and middle income countries is affordability. Where there is no fiscal space, what can you do to finance these, these kinds of interventions, these wage subsidy schemes? Um, a, a blanket furlough scheme, for example, may, could be, may be quite effective and provide a counter shock in the very short term, but it, it turns out to be very expensive and not sustainable over a long period of time. However, there are other more flexible, uh, uh, more flexible schemes, such as the, the German Kurzarbeit, uh, I don't know if I pronounce it well, the short work, which seems to be working slightly better in terms of smoothing out the impact on jobs and public finances. So the question is, you know, can uh, these schemes be applied to low and middle income countries where there's no fiscal space for this? That is a big question mark, and this is perhaps something that we can discuss. But this is something that is, as a, as a mechanism of protection, is, is absolutely fundamental. Um, one problem, for example, that arose in Ethiopia was, uh, and that's why wage subsidy schemes were long discussed and eventually not, not implemented, is A, there's not, not enough resources, but also that if you target particular populations, for example, the industrial workers in industrial parks, then the question is, you know, what about the rest? And if the others are not affected or not uh, eligible for a wage subsidy scheme, that can raise serious political questions. So there is a question of political feasibility in some of these job protection schemes that needs to be taken uh, seriously. Now, uh, moving forward, uh, what can we say at the medium uh, to long to long term? Here, the, the, the key challenge uh, for me is, is building resilience in production networks. Uh, so jobs are not so vulnerable to shocks like uh, COVID-19. Um, and for example, when you look at the global value chains like April, COVID-19 has indeed revealed the structural vulnerabilities of these production networks and the lack of resilience. So something needs to be done because, you know, we're talking about 
hundreds and not thousands of suppliers in Asia and, and Africa that have been uh, suspending operations or shutting down. So I can see here two uh, areas um, of two policy issues mainly. Uh, one is what can be done within global value chains, what kinds of changes and, and improvements can be uh, achieved within a global value chain in order to build resilience. Uh, and secondly, what can be done more in terms of economy-wide uh, um, um, actions uh, in order to smooth out the impact of, of these shocks on, on jobs. Within global value chains, there's different things. Uh, for example, in the case of APRO, global production networks, uh, um, I believe that improving the governance of these networks and building verticality can indeed contribute to strengthening the links between lead firms, buyers, the suppliers, the workers, and of course, governments. So if this is achieved, uh, one would expect greater accountability, especially of lead firms, and through that, building trust and commitment to resilience. Secondly, uh, um, one example of this would be expanding global framework, framework agreements, like the, the ones that companies like Inditex or H&M uh, have, which can be designed to improve job security with strong commitment from lead firms to create job protection systems within those chains. Um, you know, there are many other things that can be done, such as building up stocks to avoid disruption in supply chains when raw materials and inputs are not accessible for a period of time, or any other trade facilitation measures that can help uh, avoid or, or reduce supply chain uh, disruption. In terms of outside the global value chains and, and monitoring the economy-wide uh, uh, actions, it's quite clear that in order to address these risks, there's a need to diversify and avoid dependence on global value chains or sectors that are particularly vulnerable to, to COVID-19 type of shocks. So it is okay for Ethiopia to specialize in apparel, uh, but uh, it might be uh, advisable also to expand the range of products, i.e., for example, to, to PPE or manufacturing sectors, you know, pharmaceuticals, agricultural inputs, and so on and so forth, because their level of vulnerability is likely to vary in relation to these shocks. And then, for example, if you look at services, uh, we know that services are particularly vulnerable to shocks like COVID. So it is important that service providers build resilience by being able to quickly adjust to a new situations, such, such as a lockdown. So, for example, by having, say, home delivery or online delivery as fallback options. So that requires investments, that, that requires finance that is not always uh, readily available. So let me just uh, um, end uh, my intervention with, with you know, a, an idea about uh, why DFIs can play a very, very important role in this. I think the most obvious is providing finance to expand fiscal space. Fiscal space is necessary in low and middle income countries in order to basically build up these job protection and more generally social protection systems. And secondly, uh, I think it's uh, possible that DFIs can use the advantage they have in terms of being able to coordinate multi-country responses always backed up by finance. I think this is one of the big uh, uh, lessons from COVID-19, the first few months of the pandemic, is the absolute imperative necessity of uh, improving coordination and engaging in multi-country responses to the pandemic, which hasn't really happened uh, as, as we, we would have wished. So I'm going to stop there, Dirk. Okay. Thank you very much. A very important role for DFIs in, in the, for the job protection schemes uh, and also in building resilience in value chains, for example. 
Uh, let me just return to Stephen, if that is all right. Um, and maybe you could proceed with your remarks. Sorry that we lost you briefly. Um, uh, we make up some time, but if you could, uh, if you could um, make your remarks, uh, Stephen. Oh, thank excellent. you, thank you, Doug. And uh, sorry about that mishap. Now, I think um, the other uh, panelists may have already mentioned some of the things that I would have said. So let me go straight to the issue of the the role of the TFIs. And I would like, first of all, by to start by saying that the Based on the survey that we did, the banks and the other financial uh, institutions, um, based on the responses we got, they seem not to be playing the strong countercyclical role that is expected of them. Uh, and that is why the DFIs are critical here, because they have a, a very unique opportunity uh, to play a role in terms of supporting the firms that are facing the liquidity issues now and also protecting the private uh, sector jobs. Now, uh, earlier in this pandemic, uh, there is a piece of work that uh, the ECA and ODI did, and there is a piece that was published uh, between uh, uh, Dark, uh, myself, and the executive secretary of ECA. And essentially in that uh, piece, basically what we said was that the, the DFIs uh, can do very well uh, to support the private sector in the continent if they do three things. One, by fast tracking the responses when uh, the private sector comes to them, because we have seen that uh, the private sector in the continent is not getting as much and as rapid response as it would require. Two, they can actually have a moratorium on the repayment for the ongoing businesses. And three, they can come up with a bouncing back better facility because the future is such that you need to save to save the jobs. So those are three things that we said last time. Now, these actions are very are both good and they're also good for business. So you want to, we want, would want to encourage the DFIs to help the existing portfolio of companies. That is the first thing, but also for them to come in because as you recover, as these private sector farms in Africa recover out of the out of the pandemic, it becomes good business also for the DFIs. Now, there are some examples of where now the DFIs can actually uh, invest in. And I would want to give uh, very quickly three, three examples based on what we have seen happening in the continent. The first area that the DFIs can actually do is actually to support those private sector firms, especially the manufacturing firms that have demonstrated the capacity to repurpose and also to retool for them to be able to provide the essential medical supplies. So beyond the pandemic, we can actually create a resilience for the continent. And this is where the DFIs can actually come in and support these kind of private sector firms. The second one is actually strengthening logistics. There are companies that are actually preparing themselves to take advantage or at least to play a role when it comes to the vaccine distribution. So the DFIs can invest in African companies that are already playing, uh, the uh, putting together the ground to be part and parcel of the distribution of the vaccines when that happens. And lastly, 
we have seen that Africa has actually been able to at least mitigate the impacts of the pandemic through the digitalization. Uh, quite a number of African countries have come up with solutions and it would be good for the DFIs to invest in these kind of um, uh, companies, also help them to scale up. That will not only be good for these companies, but also for the other companies that they provide services to. So, so this is what I wanted to, to say that the DFIs can actually have a very important role to play in protecting livelihoods and also jumpstarting economic recovery, but at the same time, uh, supporting companies that are going to be there for the long haul. Thank you very much. Well, that was really uh, uh, loud and clear, Stephen. I think some very good uh, and specific uh, demands from uh, for, for, from the device, basically, or for the device, um, and to to uh, to help the uh, the response and uh, and the recovery, um, and uh, which is, I think, a, a very good uh, opportunity for DFIs. And so, so, I think we should also now turn to to uh, DFI representatives, uh, and let first uh, turn to uh, Dr. Sam Lacey. Um, uh, so we we're very interested to hear from you uh, how CDC helped to uh, helps to protect jobs and improve job quality uh, in its investee companies, of course, and particularly with regard to informal work and vulnerable populations. Uh, maybe you could, uh, well, the floor is yours for about five minutes, uh, Sam. Fabulous. Thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity um, to to speak today. And also, particularly, thank you to Stephen because although. I had no um, no prior warning of the points that he was going to make. It actually feeds in nicely to a number of the points I, I wanted to make. So, um, so, so that's lucky. There seems to be some kind of alignment there. I think the first thing I wanted to say was that I want to be really clear that even before COVID hit, there was an enormous jobs crisis in the markets in which DFIs invest. For example, in India, over 80% of people who are in work are in work in the informal sector. In Africa, less than 15% of, of people who are working are actually in the formal sector. So in a sense, those who, who have the formal jobs are the yucky, lucky ones. And in Africa in particular, that's due to get worse, irrespective of COVID, simply because of the youth bulge and the need for 800, uh, eight, 18 million new jobs per year to be created to meet that growing um, working age population. Clearly this has been exacerbated by COVID um, and the ILO estimated that between March and June of this year, the number of working hours globally reduced by 14%, which is the equivalent of 400 million full-time jobs. And that impact is much worse in developing countries and it's much worse even within developing countries for the most vulnerable, such as women and, and youth. So what's the role of DFIs in all of this? Um, I agree with, with all the points that, that Stephen made. Um, I think the reason that DFIs exist or a huge part of DFIs mandates, even pre-COVID was to create and support livelihoods. Um, and a huge part of that is through formal job creation and the protection of formal jobs um, and ensuring the quality of those jobs. A less celebrated part of our mandate is also to improve livelihoods in the informal sector and I'll come back to that in a minute but let's just pause on the on the formal job creation and protection piece for a moment. CDC has taken a, a three pillar approach 
to its COVID response. And, and actually, just before I go into that, I just wanted to say in, in response to, to Stephen's point about needing to react quickly, a little insight into what it was like within CDC as, as COVID hit. And I think, you know, the first week when we all suddenly went into lockdown, everyone is suddenly working from home, trying to figure out how to work from home. And then, you know, sort of a day or two after that, you suddenly realize what the impact is going to be in our markets and that this is the time to step up. And I think as a, an employee in the DFI at that time, everybody put their shoulder to the wheel. It was really incredible how from the bottom up, from all across the different teams in CDC, everyone said, what can I do? What can I do for my companies? Which of my companies are most vulnerable? Which of my companies could adapt to be part of the solution? And there was really a kind of bottom up response from across the business of, of people saying, okay, I've got my own stuff to deal with. I'm now at home with my children. And I'm trying to deal with that. But everyone was also thinking about, about the portfolio and that was really inspiring. So I just wanted to, to share that briefly. Um, so the first pillar of our th three-pronged approach was to preserve the over 800,000 jobs in the over 1,200 companies in which we invest. Um, and I'll come back to how we preserve those jobs in a second. The second pillar is to strengthen businesses and help them adapt to be part of the response. And that's something that I think Stephen spoke about. So, uh, for example, picking up on, on Stephen's example, delivery companies that previously delivered consumer goods adapted to delivering food and medical supplies. Manufacturers that previously, again, developed consumer goods or, or clothes adapted to PPE or, um, or ventilators. A pharmaceutical distribution company um, sourced large numbers of COVID testing kits and partnered up with a bank to provide small pharmacies with the credit facilities to enable them to buy those testing kits. So there was a huge amount of that kind of activity, as well as the core preserving the existing jobs. And we had a suite of tools at our disposal to do that. So we have our investment capital, so we could invest more in businesses that needed to, to scale up or adapt. And I think also, as Stephen mentioned, we were able to consider how we could be flexible about the terms of our um, our legal agreements and particularly loan agreements around, you know, when they're due to be repaid and so on and so forth. We also have uh, a technical assistance facility, which includes some grant capital, which could be used to help companies access the advice that they needed to pivot their business models and adapt to the crisis or, or even just adapt their employment models, adapt to working from home. There was a huge amount of, of change that companies had to uh, go through very, very quickly. So, so we were able to help with that. And we also kind of absorbed some of those lessons and started producing advisory notes, hosting webinars, and helping individual companies with bespoke support. And then the third pillar, which is the one that I, I want to spend a moment on, um, although I'm aware I'm running out of time, uh, is the rebuild pillar, um, which is all about thinking about where are the formal jobs going to be created at scale in our markets? Um, investing to support the creation of formal jobs in new sectors, in emerging sectors, in business process outsourcing, in, in uh, sectors that are growing due to digitization. But we need to recognize that formal jobs are not going to scale quickly enough. Um, you know, if you think back to the statistics that I gave at the beginning about less than 15% of jobs in Africa are in the formal sector. 
we're not overnight going to be able to switch that to 90%. So we also need to look at how we support the improvement of livelihoods in the informal sector. And I think, certainly in my memory, the images of the informal workers in India, the internal migrants walking home when their jobs uh, were stopped at a moment's notice when, when lockdown hit, really brought that vulnerability that they live with every day to the world's attention. And so I really think that there is a, DFIs already play a role in supporting the improvement of informal livelihoods through the, the loans and the financial services that we provide to, to small scale entrepreneurs, through the formal businesses that we invest in that outsource to the informal sector and, and the work that we do to improve the quality of the jobs in the contractors and subcontractors that we outsource to. But we also um, have a growing role, I think, to think about how we can support informal jobs through the growing digitized trading platforms and labor platforms. And how can we use those platforms that are serving to kind of organize the informal sector as an opportunity to direct support to, to those informal workers to develop their, their businesses, whether that's through providing them access to loans, providing them access to training, providing them access to resources that help them to develop their businesses in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. Um, I'm aware I've spoken for more than my five minutes, so I'll leave it there, but would love to come back to that theme uh, in the discussion if people are interested. Thank you. Sure. Thank you very much, Sam. So very clear uh, as well, the response from CDC, preserve, strengthen and rebuild. And uh, and you're, you're saying that you're already uh, supporting um, a, a, a range of activities. In, in that sense, DFIs are already building back better they were already doing that actually before uh before the crisis and they, they're just doing that now again uh and uh, but you also said there might be a growing role and an, an improved role and a, uh, and a beefed up role as it were to uh, to this so we can explore that as well so thank you very much indeed so i think we should now uh, turn to um dr julian freider and to hear from him how does dg help to protect jobs and improve job quality in its investing companies um and has it changed dg's approach uh, to uh to job quality um, and if we're aiming to build back better after this shock uh, what should better look like in your view over to you thanks Dirk, and thanks to all the speakers especially sam i can only i think add what uh what she was speaking about and uh thanks really for showing the situation that you had at cdc and i can definitely mirror that from deg that partly people just said, I could sleep quite well tonight because my job is safe and my kids are at home, but my clients have problems and the situations out there is really troublesome and they work day and night to support that. Um, in general, I wanted to make three points as you have also split your question. Um, so job quality and how DFIs are kind of related to supporting jobs and formal jobs. I think one thing is that a DFI has not directly the idea to create jobs per se, but via business growth, sustainable business growth to support business success. And via this long-term success, also to provide a good basis for a sustainable job. Um, so we are not per se job creators, it would be like job programs, but we support long-term financially viable jobs in the business activities. Decency is a totally different thing. Decency job quality is a major aspect of DFI's works, and um, it was formerly more on risk management, so that 
job quality was part of uh, keeping ILO core labor standards, no child labor, on, and so on. But it's more and more moved, and since five years, it's also in, in DEG's um, target system to say we need to go beyond compliance and also go on a on a HR system focus. And on top, on the upside focus, so closing skills gap, employee motivation, career path planning, and so on. So there's a direct link of economic success and social um, inclusion here. And that is something DFIs are very active since, since as I said, on the risk side since ages. And uh, on, on this impact focus at, at DEG, I'd say since four years, we have it included in our target system. Now, in times of crisis, um, I think there are, again, two sides. On the one side, it's we keep businesses alive. So the supporting economic sustainability from this triangle, economic sustainability, and being a partner in times of crisis is a major element of the DFI's mission. And I think it became clear again in this crisis. And yes, it's it's difficult for DFI to select now the ones where you say there's a liquidity crisis or there's a solvency crisis. So which clients can we support with quick li liquidity so that they are kept alive in, in these times? Um, on the other side now, we also saw beyond economic aspects in our Corona task force, um, beside financials, it's ESG management. So how is the client managing his environmental and social and corporate governance aspects? And normally they then got a quicker access to liquidity, for example, if we new systems are well equipped. And then job protection was part of it. When you see job protection, there are two aspects. Um, we target with specific technical assistances, so kind of the, the quick crisis responses. Quick crisis responses were on one side health, so protect the job, uh, the staff uh, against COVID-19. Um, These were like health support, uh, hygiene concepts and everything like this. So getting consultants and uh, consultancy guidances to the clients, even on the ground to support them building up um, again, concept in the facilities to protect the people and keep business um, going. And on the other side, we had HR and labor risks support as we saw clients, which have um, even retrenchments, quick retrenchments done, um, because we found out that it's often not linked to their financial planning. I give one example. Um, we had a, um, a client with, uh, with shops all over a country. And the first thing what they found out is, oh, crisis uh, cut sales by 50%. Let's get rid of, of costs. Yeah, And they, they threw out actually a lot of contracted work. So the more vulnerable workers as like kind of switching off a machine. And now two, three months later, they just said, okay, let's, let's restart. And then they were surprised that you cannot just switch on again labor force because they will not come back immediately if they don't have to and of a lot of them just said okay you left us in a second we will not come back to you so they really have a trouble now bringing back sales because they dealt in a way economically or business technically not correct um, with their workforce so again it's like make retrenchment better or even don't um, lose your workforce go into deals with them on i don't know free leave and so on, keep them uh, to your company is a business case. And at the same time, it's it's a good uh, acti activity for social sustainability. Coming to these building back better aspects, um, at DEG, we are still quite clear about that we need also in future to do our homework. So pushing uh, companies contractually, but also supporting them if, if they are interested, um, to 
be compliant with international labor standards um, and also showing them in future even easier now the business case of environmental social especially the social uh, aspect of, of management um, that's that's a core aspect of DG's business was it before and I think with the crisis and discussing on discussing resilience uh, it's even more relevant um, corporate governance for us is now also taking this this aspect of managing jobs um, and HR management pretty serious because crisis revealed that often HR management, HR planning is not directly linked to financial planning. So if clients now came to us saying, oh, we need to, to cut costs and we will probably do retrenchment plans, we just said, okay, show us the financial planning and how your retrenchment payments are included into it. And often they weren't. So there's a corporate governance issue to this where we think there could be a new standard set um, which is a business case and on the other side also very much pushing social sustainability. Two other points that I wanted to bring, what studies also show is that the most vulnerable is not only the vulnerable populations, but also the smaller the business, the harder they are hit, they're more dependent on monthly income and so they are. So what we as DGs still want to continue strongly to do institution building with financial institutions to reach out to the SMEs, to microfinance, also small growing corporates yeah, to build a certain business base um, and support them long-term, um, reaching informal sectors. And the other one is we want to strengthen our environmental social management to the value chains. Digital solutions are helping us very much to now cover more than direct and first link um, employees which are uh, working in the uh, value chain but we can go up to the crop that is grown and that is something we also want to enforce i think that were the major points on building back better and i think we can start discussion okay julian thank you very much and so now i'd, li I'd like to open it up to uh, the wider um, audience and uh, i've already seen that some questions have come through the chat which is very helpful um, what I'll be doing um, is taking some of these questions and putting them to the panel. So I first have two to three questions to, uh, and I put them to uh, uh, Julian and Sam. Uh, I'm bringing uh, a couple of strands together as well. Uh, first, a question from Charles Weston. Um, he he uh, was asking, uh, were DFIs actually prepared well enough for the labor market impacts of a crisis like COVID-19? Uh, scientists seem to be suggesting pandemics could become much more frequent uh, do we now need a new approach to this one? Uh, it also ties into sort of building resilience point that Carlos Aya was mentioning. Um, and so that, that is quite a, an important question. Uh, and I think it also ties in a bit with Julian, what you were saying at the end. Um, and then there's a question also, I think, which is relevant for DFI representatives on the panel, uh, which is an anonymous question. And it's suggesting that there are quite a few development finance institutions. And the question is, uh, is anyone trying to coordinate the job protection responses to the pan pandemic um, or is each DFI following its own agenda? Of course, we've heard both of your institution, DG, CDC, uh, saying on day two, immediately being worried about what you can do. Is there also maybe on day three, has there been uh, uh, sort of a, uh, a discussion taking place between the DFIs? Uh, and perhaps you can discuss a bit on sort of the collaboration, because I think it's so important to, to collaborate uh, because the scale of the crisis is so, is so huge. It's bigger, much bigger than the global financial crisis. And uh, and it's really important that DFIs also have a counter-cyclical response uh, and can can, can be um, um, working together. So maybe, uh, Sam, maybe you would have a brief response to these, these questions and then Julian. 
Thank you very much. No, they're, they're both very good questions. I think, were we prepared well enough? Um, I mean, it's a fair question. Can anyone ever be prepared well enough for something like that, that, that has hit on a scale really never before seen? Um, I think what we did find was that the tools we already had at our disposal um, were very useful. So we were able to use our investment capital. We were able to to flex terms on on legal agreements, we were able to use our technical assistance facilities and our and our internal teams that have strong relationships with investees to to advise them and support them. Um, so I think um, I think the tools we had at our disposal proved quite useful for the task. Um, but of course, you can always be better prepared. And I think looking forward, if we're thinking that these kinds of crises may become more frequent and let's be clear we're not only talking about pandemic crises we're talking about climate crises and and all sorts of other crises that, that may hit us in the future then this this concept of resilience and resilience at the individual level you know how can we help build resilience for those vulnerable workers who at a moment's notice are let go and they have no social security they have no savings they have uh in some cases like in india not even a way to walk to get home um how can you build resilience at the, at the person, at the, the worker level, and then how can you build resilience at the at the system level? And that I think is something that is probably beyond the scope of this call to really figure out how that happens. But that is an area that, as as DFIs, as investors, as as uh, as academics, we all need to to put our minds together on. Um, to the other question, which was around coordination. Um, Yes, there's been a huge amount of coordination. I think, um, again, we already had forums in which the sort of larger multilateral development banks meet together to talk about things they're working on and the sort of smaller bilateral, like the European DFIs, like DEG, Proparco and, and others and ourselves. Um, and then we also coordinate between the two because I think the tools at our disposal are slightly different for the bilaterals compared to the multilaterals that have uh, stronger relationships with government. Um, and we are coordinating, but we also all have unique roles in relation to our particular portfolio. So whilst we do, of course, need to coordinate and to compare um, and learn from one another, when it comes down to how you help an individual company, only you can do that because you have that relationship, um, particularly for the bilaterals that don't really have a direct relationship with government. Um, I don't know, Julian, whether you want to, to add any more. Yeah, I think what uh, on coordination, um, I'd like to add that I was really surprised how fast um, our CEO was involved in weekly calls with um, other DFIs, CEOs, really talking about, okay, how can we coordinate? How can we improve? Where are you going? Are you going to support a certain fund? Are you going to support certain regions? What is what is done best by your institution? How can we learn? Um, and that was really like an open discussion they made. And I was really surprised on which level and how fast that started going and, and the frequency they did this, yeah? Um, so for me, that was, a, was a, in a way a surprise because before coordination was also done, but that you kind of, see there's a big problem, a crisis hitting your institution. And the, probably not the first, but the second thing is you take the phone and call your friends. That was quite a good feeling to see that coordination before already was, was working quite well. Yeah, and I involved there also IFC and, and the European device, not, not only Europe. Um, 
So I was really impressed by this. And then on the other side, what we do when we talk on the Corona task force about supporting a client, we check not only the client has a financial crisis, is he going to retrench jobs? How is his ESG management? But we also check who's who else is involved. And then we just, you know, the investment managers know each other. So on a single client, on a single investment, they call each other saying, hey, are you planning a technical assistance with them? What are your funds? What do you think with liquidity? Should we do a virtual due diligence together? So these talks were coordinated on the, on the single client basis. So I was actually surprised being able to see the both sides, how CEOs checked what's, what's going on and how can we improve. And then even on the ground, we checked, there's already CDC with this client. Let's go for another one. Yeah, so I like that approach quite well. And yes, there is, if you say coordination yeah, of, the, of the development finance institution, it's kind of a voluntary coordination, but it went like private sector activities. It went quite well from my view up to now. Um, with regard to being prepared, yes, we can prepare it better. Yeah? And I think now after this crisis, everybody will be prepared a bit better, um, but you just have to keep a certain flexibility in our work continues to be flexible. So I think um, the more flexible we are working in future, the better prepared we will be for any crisis which we cannot foresee. Okay, thank you. Um, so there, there are some other questions. Um, and there's a question from Adam Bradford and I'll, I'll like to put them to Carlos and Steven and they may also want to respond to what they've heard just now. But there's one about, uh, I think, scale uh, of the firms that are being supported. Um, so is there a role for micro impact entrepreneurship in providing work low barrier to entry for some people and perhaps that may um uh, you may want to th think about sort of a, a wider question around the sort of formal versus informal sector how do you reach the informal sector um and i was mentioning that uh in my introduction only four four and a half percent of the firms uh, that are operating in low-income country settings have a, had access to external support um and so it's very difficult to reach uh, a lot of firms in in low-income country settings uh and so um, uh, what, what is the role of scale in this? Is, are large firms important? Are small firms important? Um, what is the role for each? Maybe Carlos, you want to go first and then Stephen. You may also want to respond to some of the other points that have been raised. Yeah, um, thank you. I mean, it's, this is obviously a very difficult question. And the problem is that in answering this question is understanding whether we're talking about the short term, the medium term or the long run. If you ask me in the long run, it is quite clear that a, an economy cannot develop on the basis of, uh, of millions of atomized micro-entrepreneurs. I don't know a single example in history where that has happened. So it is, it is unquestionable that in one way or another, economies in order to diversify it and structurally transform will have to gradually create bigger business. You know, then the large firms need to emerge out of this process of transformation. Now, the problem is what happens in the short term, where the, the, the evidence of these, you know, huge informal sectors and atomized micro-entrepreneurs, et cetera, is precisely a symptom of those other businesses, large businesses not developing, and the symptom of not there, of there not being a social protection system. So people cannot afford to be unemployed, therefore they will do anything they can in order to survive and self-employment and micro-entrepreneurship is an answer to that. So I would be wary of, of, of seeing the promotion of, of micro-entrepreneurship as a way out uh, in relation to building resilience. I think there is something that can be done for those who are in a way stuck in that kind of situation and that requires particular types of intervention. I don't think that microfinance is necessarily the answer. 
I mean, there's other social protection mechanisms that may be more important, more, more, more uh, relevant for these kind of situation. And then there's a question of how DFIs and others can really coordinate and contribute to the emergence of, of, of a more viable business. And, and that is really always my worry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Um, so I'm going to start by saying that the African continent today is creating a platform that is going to respond to the points that were, that were raised by colors. In other words, we have this one market that is being created, the African continent of free trade area, that is going to be a playing field for scaling up of these MSME, MSMEs and SMEs, uh, so, to, so to speak. So they'll have an opportunity to grow beyond their national, their, their national markets. And I think this brings me back to the point I was saying, if the DFIs can invest in these uh, small farms in, in Africa now, going forward, it's going to become very good business because now we are going to remove all these tariffs and tariff barriers, and we are going to have a functional regional integration within the continent because issues of competition policy, intellectual property, investment, digitalization are going to be taken, taken, taken care of. Now, in order to, before I conclude, you raise the issue of them of the informal sector, and and really, uh, if there if there is one sector that has suffered out of this pandemic, is the informal sector, because they become non-existent because you don't know where they are. So, if somebody had a small mm -hmm. business, mm -hmm. it was informal, mm -hmm. it was not registered, even if the government wanted to help, it was not able to help. So that's why, again, the response, taking advantage of the lessons of digitalization, it becomes very important because it's going to help us see these informal, 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 informal sector companies as they become visible through, 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 through technology. Um, I don't know whether you're going to give me the, my last one minute or we are going to come back in another, in another round because I was going to say the following. In the survey that we did, we asked these farms, what would you want the government to do for you? They said they would want to see a postponement of tax payments, provision of working capital, access to low interest loans. Unfortunately, the African governments are so constrained from the fiscal point of view. Again, this shows why the DFIs are so critical in at least sustaining uh, the, the current businesses and also growing sustainable businesses within the continent. Remembering that it's good business because we have the African continent of free trade area that is just going to become operational from 1st of January 2021 in terms of startups. Okay, thank you, Stephen. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, and also thank you for reminding that we are we need to be close to, to uh, 2 p.m. Um, what um, uh, what I'd uh, like to do is just read down one, one question um, that has come in as well, uh, which I think is perhaps impor also important. Um, but then I will give, give everyone a, a one minute uh, final uh, response. Um, so uh, you, don't, you may not be able to answer this particular question. Um, but what a question that came in from Sam Attridge, which is that in the long term, building back uh, or rebuilding and creating jobs at scale requires coordination between DFIs. Um, and you've touched on that and you gave, gave some examples there, but also with local actors and governments as well. 
Uh, and Carlos mentioned the need to diversify and transform economies. And this requires coordinated action and alignment with country plans. Uh, and then she said she has to come across many DFIs that have sort of country strategies that look strategically about market development and transformation. And perhaps you could comment on this. I don't know where you want to, to take this. But I suppose in, in the final point, uh, the final minute that you've got, maybe you can also think a bit about, so what is the one opportunity that is there for DFIs to uh, to uh, think about job protection during the crisis now? And what is this, sort of the one thing you, you think uh, DFIs now need to be uh, looking at? Uh, and maybe I should do it in uh, reverse order. Um, maybe I take Julian first and then uh, and then Sam and then Carlos and then Stephen. So Julian, maybe you'd like to go uh, first. I think final statement on, on this talks is that DFIs need to do their homework first. I think that is something we have done before the crisis. Now in the crisis, we moved up on that. And now we kind of have to take it really serious to go on the compliance, take in the, the more vulnerable, informal people, thinking about the value chains and taking digit solutions into that. So making that homework first and then thinking about building back better and nice extra things, but really going on this issue and really supporting formal jobs in, in our partner countries. I like that. We need to do more homework. Uh, Sam. Yeah, fully support what, what Julian said. Um, I think it's it's really important, uh, particularly at times like this, but at any time for DFIs to take a step back and, and look at where our resources can best be used to support livelihoods at scale and the improvement of livelihoods at scale. And I think, as Carlos said, you know, part of that is about growing the formal sector. But the piece that is different this time to any other country that has developed before now is the role that digitization is playing and the role that digital platforms are playing. Now, there's a huge amount of risk and opportunity in that role. On the risk side, you've got the risk that by semi-formalizing a huge informal sector, you enable a formal business to take advantage of the lack of regulations and lack of protections for the workers sitting underneath that platform. On the flip side, if you're an investor with a development mandate, those kinds of platforms, if managed responsibly, give you access to that informal sector that you would never otherwise get. So if you pick your partners wisely and you pick partners that are willing to upskill the workers on their platform, that are willing to give them loans to progress their businesses and, and really help them develop and, and provide better access to markets so that they can grow those businesses, then there's the potential to have a positive development impact. And I think uh, navigating that balance between those two, this, this sector is growing, it's growing rapidly, whether we like it or not. Um, and navigating that, I think is gonna be one of the big questions for DFIs in terms of how they improve livelihoods in, in the informal sector, in addition to the role that they've always traditionally played in the formal sector. Okay, thank you, Carlos. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that point. I think it's 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 a very important debate to that we need to have, and and of course there's different views on this. But I think the, the issue of scaling up uh, and promoting businesses that are more likely to to generate uh, stable and less vulnerable jobs is absolutely fundamental. Then going back to one of the questions that you relate to us, uh, Dirk, on the need to to coordinate with with local actors and governments, I think this is also crucial. Because there are places, there are countries where you have quite active governments, and, and I'm thinking of Ethiopia and their response to the crisis in the first three, four months. 
and 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 and, and it strikes me you know, to what extent DFIs and other uh, international organizations aligned or did not align to what the government was proposing as a way of overcoming the crisis in the short to medium term. So I think it's when the ideas are there and governments are proposing ways of tackling the crisis, I think it's important for DFIs and other institutions to join forces and, and really support those efforts. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and Stephen? Yeah, my final word is that um, the DFIs uh, should be willing to take more risk. I think that issue has emerged from, um, from this panel. And so the shareholders need to put more money in the DFIs and we need to be more innovative in some of the risk sharing schemes uh, that needs to be put in place uh, moving forward. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Well, I think this was a really um, excellent panel on DFIs and, and, and job protection. Um, sort of what I take from this, first of all, that there are huge opportunities for DFIs uh, to, play, to play a role. And I think that is something we need to take on board that DFIs um, have a, a strong role, they, they can fill gaps, um, and uh, they have also, secondly, um, already done a lot of things. And they already have, have been doing things before the crisis, as it were, but, but now they, uh, they've stepped up their support during the crisis. Uh, and, and we've heard uh, some examples here of what they've been, been doing, uh, which is also very, very good to see. Um, but we've also heard that they can do more. And I think uh, uh, the DFI representative, so Julian, for example, is also suggesting we need to do more homework. Um, and in the future, we can think more about uh, dealing with informality. We can need to think about digitalization. Uh, so there are a range of issues that need to be uh, need to be looked at, and we may need to be even better prepared than we were uh, pre uh, uh, before. And perhaps also uh, the importance of taking risks. Um, and of course, uh, we'll see how it goes uh, uh, this year and whether investing uh, companies, of course, uh, are at risk. Um, but I think a call for 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 more risk taking, I think, is uh, is is also well taken from uh, from Stephen. So uh, lots of opportunities. Uh, DFI is doing a lot already, and uh, more can be done. I think is some is our takeaways. Um, so with that, I'd like to thank uh, well, the, the audience for their questions, but of course the, uh, uh, the panel, uh, Sam, uh, Carlos, Julian and Stephen, for their insights. And thank you very much also uh, for, for the collaboration with the range of DFIs. And I hope everyone uh, who's watching this will also sign up for the next meeting, which is on uh, the development finance institutions and the health sector, which is promising to be a very interesting meeting indeed. So. Um, we're hoping to see you again then. So thank you very much for, um, for tuning in and uh, hope to see you again. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.